An aid worker's personal security is impacted by where the aid worker is, who they are, and their role and organization. Organizations have a duty of care to take all reasonable measures to protect their staff from foreseeable risks, including those that emerge due to personal characteristics. I am Tara Arthur with the Global Interagency Security Forum. Join us as we explore the interplay between inclusivity and security risk management. Hi, Javeria. Hi, Tara. Thanks for joining us today. So excited to be here. So today again, we are diving deeper into inclusivity and focusing today's episode on security managers of today through the lens of women of color working in the humanitarian and development sector. And so I am extremely excited to have Javeria Malik here with us. And I'd like to just turn it over to you and give you the floor and, and see if you wouldn't mind sharing a little about yourself and also maybe a little bit about how you got involved in the sector. Thanks, Tara. You just said it. It's so exciting to be part of this wonderful conversation. It's so timely, so relevant, and so important. So thanks for the opportunity. I'm Javeria Malik, pronouns she, her, hers. I am a Pakistani national. I'm working in the NGO security risk management sector for the last decade. This is a really long time. <laughs> and I'm currently associated with ActionAid International. I'm leading their global security unit. And I'm also chair of the board of directors of International NGO Safety and Security Association, or INSA. So I think it's important because this, this topic is just so close to my heart, Tara, but I want to make a small disclaimer that the opinions and thoughts that I'll be sharing in this conversation are purely my own. So I take full accountability and responsibility for everything that I'm going to share. But I also want to highlight that the stuff that I'm going to share today with some examples and some lived experiences, they're all based on my years of experience working in this sector and through my interactions and discussions with various colleagues. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And you definitely come with a wealth of knowledge and it's going to be a very exciting conversation that we have today. And I think, you know, opinions and thoughts are your own. And that's exactly one of the beauties of what this series is about is really allowing people the space to explore the realities of what inclusivity means for security in the sector. And so I think, you know, it would actually be great for us to start with exactly the topic of today, which is what is a security manager of today? And so let's kick things off with this question. What are the key attributes and skill sets that the INGOs should look for while recruiting or advertising for a security manager? You know, Tara, it's such a wonderful question. And I'll tell you why. Because for the last few months, I've been seeing a lot of security managers, security officers, or security directors' jobs being advertised. So I just um, tried to do something for fun. I looked at the job descriptions of most of the jobs that I could find, you know, that were advertised. And I tried to find commonalities and things that I thought a little bit adjustment. Okay, so let's talk about the skill set. I'm going to talk about the soft skills that usually come at, way at 
the end, at the bottom of the job description, because the job descriptions or the job adverts are usually asking for technical or operational skills that are very much security related. But I think what we need to emphasize is that technical skills can be learned, you know, by reading a book, attending a conference or a workshop, by, you know, through mentorship. But then there are the softer side of skills, they take almost like a lifetime to hone. Okay. Are we looking for the right type of skill set when we're advertising for these roles? So, for example, empathy. Empathy is a quality we must definitely look for. And it's not just, you know, people that come across and, you know, when in their conversation, they always say, well, do I do empathize. However, it's not the words. It is actually how you empathize. And does your empathy actually stand out in real life? Is the other person able to feel that empathy? Is it sincere? Okay. The other one is good communication. Now, a lot of people confuse communication skills with language skills. And we all know it's not correct because communication is the choice of words, the time and the frequency with which you communicate. And what is it that you're communicating? What is your key message, right? In that if it's effective, if you know your audience, you know what they want to hear and you know how to convey your message in a way that it doesn't sound transactional, but rather empowering. So empowering communication in itself is a whole different topic, right? But anyway, so good communication is a skill that is non-negotiable in a security manager. Then the third one I would think would is definitely ability to influence uh, stakeholders. Now, that influence may not come with a direct hierarchy. You know, security managers sometimes have to deal with stakeholders over whom they have no authority, meaning no line management. Sometimes security is not even accepted in certain contexts or by certain individuals. And how do you communicate with those individuals? How do you communicate effective risk management messages? How do you sell your product, basically, and your services? And that is diplomacy. So, I mean, diplomacy is something, and again, we're not talking in the government or the, you know, the bureaucratic terms, but we're seeing diplomacy as part of effective leadership. How do you practice that? And then here's an important one, and I think that's the probably slight difference between the traditional patriarchal model of security compared to more feminist, inclusive security risk management. Do you always have to have a stern, straight face when you're dealing with a crisis? And I know that um, I've had conversations with a lot of colleagues, security colleagues, and also the end users or the customers, if you like. And what I've heard uh, overwhelmingly from others is that, yes, on one hand, people want to work with a security manager or security leader who knows what they're doing, right? But at the same time, they want to deal with a human who's got emotion. For example, one time when we heard the news of some colleagues having been injured, and the team was literally in tears. Me being the security manager, getting that news and 
responsible for providing the immediate advice. Of course, that's my professional job. That's what I'm hired to do. I would do that. But then after that initial shock is over, would I not pick up the phone and just share my emotions as to how heartbroken I am for my colleagues? Because apart from being a security manager, am I not also a human or a, or a colleague? Mm-hmm. And by the way, when, when that happened and that incident happened and I reached out to my colleagues in my personal time and I also exchanged, you know, my feelings and shed a few tears because mm. they were genuine, because they were so genuine. And that yeah. developed such strong relationship with that team. And I can tell you that that changed the perception of that team towards security their wow. attitude towards security and they finally started to you know see security as a business enabler as you know like their partner and also someone that had that you know empathy that we talked about so sometimes you don't have to again like a robot that's what i always say you mm-hmm. know i you know it's not military it's not the patriarchy of that type we're all humanitarians by the end of the day, and we have different roles, you see, but we feel the same way, we react to situations the same way. That's learning and my recommendation that we should look for people who are able to take charge of their emotions, but also be human at the same time. And the other one, uh, the last probably from my side would be uh, quick decision-making. And that's an important one. And look, what I'm sharing is nothing new. Everyone knows that these are the things you, you need in a good leader, whether they're leading security or anything else. But what surprises me is that in job adverts, we don't see these attributes as non-negotiables. However, on the other hand, we do see 10 years experience working in, you know, United Nations or international NGOs, da, da, da. Or we do see non-negotiable university degree in such and such field. Or non-negotiable is, you know, a certificate in such and such training. Those are very operational tactical skills, I would say. If I were a leader of, let's say, if I were the CEO of an organization, I'd rather be looking for the right personality and then create an environment where that personality could learn any function they were interested in. I think this, the example you shared was really illuminating about the compassion you had with dealing with your, your colleagues in, a, in an incident. And I think those things should definitely not be lost. And it made me pick up actually on a question I wanted to pose back to you. You said some interesting things about feminist SRM. And I just wanted to throw it back to you a little bit to see if you wouldn't mind unpacking that a bit. Awesome. That's a wonderful question to look in. In ActionAid, we have 10 principles of feminist leadership. And I'm only going to share a few because of time as well. One is respectful feedback. And again, by the way, before I go into feminist leadership, let me explain that feminist leadership is not feminine leadership. Feminist leadership is inclusive leadership that empowers everybody and that includes everybody. So it is not superiority of one gender or one non-gender over another, okay? So it is equality, it is empowerment, and it is equity. 
So respectful feedback. Respectful feedback, meaning, you know, you listen and you're honest and you have the courage of conviction to speak truth to power, but you're not willfully offensive because you're the intent behind the feedback is improvement and you want to help your fellow colleagues, your peers, your friends, or your family, whoever you're giving feedback to, you want to help them become better at whatever they're doing and as humans and as people. Similarly, when you receive feedback, you should be able to say no to feedback that crushes your soul. And by the way, some feedback is like that. And Tara, here, I'd like to share an example again, because you said when we were chatting about this idea of a podcast, you said, let's make it personal. And I love that because when we make it personal, (laughs) there is no right or wrong because, you know, lived experiences cannot be wrong because they're not fiction, right? And they're not even scientific facts. So they don't need peer review. They are just our story and we're telling it, right? So one time someone gave me feedback, okay? It was my line manager (laughs) a long time ago. And I said, "Uh, yeah, right, okay, okay, cool. You know, I just sort of, you know, brushed it aside. And my line manager asked me, "Mm, do you want to incorporate it in your like work plan, this feedback? I said, no, I'm good. And then my line manager asked me, uh, okay, here's an observation. You don't seem to be taking feedback seriously. My answer was, Tara, I don't know if you or the, our listeners would understand it, but here's, my, here's what I said. I said, listen, I'm a woman from Pakistan working in security, okay? And, you know, dealing at a global stage, <laughs> Do you think if I listened to feedback, I'd be here? Do you seriously think so? I know exactly what to do with feedback. If I feel that the feedback is going to clip my wings, it's not the feedback I want to give any attention to. Sorry. Because you see, Tara, back in the day when I was a budding professional in my country, I got so much feedback, you know, you know, you shouldn't do this, Jav, you know, it's not appropriate, you know, for a Muslim woman to, you know, do this or for a Pakistani girl to do this, how, you know, so, so many social things that I heard. Imagine if I had given any weight to that feedback. So it's part of my nature to, well, I receive feedback, but it's up to me what I do with it, right? So if, if I find the feedback useful, I'll take it. If I find that it's really opposed to my struggle, it's just based on a section of my professional or personal life, and it doesn't appreciate who I am or where I come from, I'm going to dismiss it. And I'm going to be selective about it, and that's my right. Okay, so that's why I say respectful feedback. It's, I think, a beautiful principle. The other uh, one more principle, again, that's a really good one, is self-care 
and caring for others. So that's a principle of feminist leadership. If you cannot practice self-care, honestly, you wouldn't care for other people's well-being because if you're, you're working extra hours, you know, there was a time when overwork was glorified. But, you know, COVID has taught us something. I mean, even before COVID, but COVID has really brought it to surface. When people try to get completely consumed by their work, there's something going on in their life that we need to be empathetic towards. Yeah, we need to be sensitive of that. Why would someone not want to take a weekend off and be with their family or friends or, you know, read a book or go for a a run or do anything of that sort, but rather just work, work, work. What is it? You know, what's going on in their life? How can they be supported? I mean, that should be the reaction, you know, in the leadership and colleagues rather than saying, oh my God, they work so hard, but that's unhealthy. You see? So self-care. So you've got to care for yourself, you've got to stand up for yourself, by the way. Um, you've got to say no, you know, healthy boundaries. But also when you practice self-care, that's what you should then support others to do as well. What that's really else? interesting. I, you know, I, I just want to jump in there because, you know, the particularly when you're talking about self-care and security managers, you know, the people who are or oftentimes, or more so maybe nowadays, trying to promote resilience and in the importance of self-care, do you feel that that advice is is largely taken to heart by your peers? Or do you feel like that is a is something that needs further strengthening amongst amongst others in the security manager side of things? You see, again, an interesting angle because Let's just look at the whole context in which we work. Let's just look at the aid sector, the structure, the very structure of the aid sector. It's very colonial, very, very colonial. The professional standards that are widely accepted in this sector, where are they coming from? They're not global. They're not global. They're very global north, okay? But... If someone wants to make it big in the sector and move beyond being a field expert, which again is a you know derogatory term in my view, field expert, because it's always you know somebody from global south that is the, the highest they can probably make, not always, but mostly 80%, 85%, the highest they can make is become a field expert of the, of the country where they belong to, right? So if they want to make it to, let's say, regional or global, then they've got to uh, adopt the colonial ways of working. And that's a sad truth. And someone asked me, Tara, Jeff, when you, you know, came in the sector, did you have to change? You know, did you have to unlearn who you are and actually tr- emulate someone else? who was more successful. And my answer, and my honest answer is yes. In the beginning, yes, because I didn't know better, okay? So again, an example, you said make it personal. So here comes an example. (laughs) (laughs) So the first time I I delivered a security training, uh, that went really well. 
But um, before coming in the security world, I was a communications person. I was, I was a journalist and a comms, comms and media person. So my training style was very comms. <laughs> and how to explain that, how to qualify mm. it. One, it's not very rigid. It's not a training training, rather more like a dialogue. It's very activity-based. It's fun, okay? It's got a lot of listening involved. So it's not, uh, again, another word which I've, I have a lot of problem with this capacity development. I want to call it capacity sharing because there's so much capacity mm. in the room that you want to also gather. By the way, the trainer, and I think a lot of the trainers that are listening to it will actually agree that the trainer learns more from the trainees than the trainees take away from the trainer. And that's a fact. And I say it after 10 years of being a trainer, okay? <laughs> so it's capacity sharing. But anyhow, my style was very non-security, okay? And you can understand it the way you want, but it's it was very equal, you know, like I said, facilitative. Okay, I did that. I was happy with it. But then I attended a training myself, which was delivered by, by the way, I was the only female there in that room, but it was delivered mm. by this really tall ex-military men. <laughs> and I was somehow, again, being naive and also slightly inexperienced, I was very new in the security field. I thought that was the benchmark. Shouting, you know, like we were talking about, you know, being those robots, no mm. extra word, no laughing, please. I mean, maybe mm. the guys were laughing with each other. I wasn't part of that laughter anyway. Also, the jokes were very northern, global north for me. There weren't Pakistani jokes, so I didn't know what to do with those. And they were very, very strict about, you know, timings and who speaks and, you know, who speaks when, you know, that type of thing. And I thought, well, that was the benchmark because, come on, those people were directors of security. And I was just a coordinator who had just started. So I said, you know what, I'm going to emulate it. So I went into my next training. Oh, man, was I so patriarchal. I was so military. The training went well. And I got some amazing feedback. Uh, people said, oh, my God, it's so wonderful to see what, in their words, a tiny woman controlling the room like that. Wow, it was amazing. But you know what? Despite that positive feedback, like I said, I take or receive feedback in my own way. I just didn't feel good because that wasn't me. Mm? That wasn't me. And I said, you know what? No, I need to be me. I need to be true to myself. And um, I'm just trying to become someone else. And if my job requires me to become someone else, that job's not for me. And that's the day I decided. And again, it's nine years ago when I decided, look, I'm just going to be me. And I'm going to be good at what I do. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give results. But the way I give results is up to me. I am a brown person. I'm a woman. I'm a Muslim. I am, there are so many intersectionalities. That's what I am. So that's what you get from a person like me. Okay. But you will get results. And yes, you will get the best of me, but you won't get a tailor-made, uh, you know, a copied <laughs> solution. <laughs> 
So on this question, Tara, I have to ask you the same question. <laughs> How long have you been in the security field? Well, that's an interesting question because security for me extends beyond just the humanitarian security. I've been a martial artist pretty much my entire life. And for me, security has always been integrated into that framing and, and how I view the world and the way I think about security, risk management, and, and, and all of those words that I now know that I didn't have when I first started to actually look at the world through a security lens. I think you know, what you shared earlier in our conversation really resonates for me, which is this, this importance of personal awareness, which can also be stemmed from the ability to communicate effectively. A lot of the same elements that are important to good security risk management practices for me are also part of who I am and where they intersect for me is that Security is everybody's responsibility. So I don't know if I answered your question well, but... <laughs> no, but you um, did. And in fact, Tara, you talked about something. You said the vocabulary. It wasn't, I mean, you were in a different field. You still are a martial artist. And that's so cool. But you said when you came to the NGO or humanitarian security world, then there was a vocabulary. That's, that's another angle. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but... Hear me out. So, yes, there is security terminology, which everybody in the security field, probably they understand. But who are our audience? And that's, again, a communicator in me asking that question. Now, when I say communicator, yeah, a lot of people listening to this might just say, well, she can't even speak proper English. Yeah, that's correct. I 100% agree with that. But like I said earlier, communication is not about language. <laughs> it is about <laughs> designing your messages for effective conveying of, you know, your thoughts and knowing your audience. So, and by the way, not all the people that preach also practice. So anyway, so I could be that exception. But here's the thing. The people that we speak to are non-security people. So by the way, in humanitarian world, or aid sector, security managers are delivering security risk management knowledge and solutions for non-security end users, okay? So I've long had an issue with the jargon in security that a lot of people find very, very alien and in some cases even off-putting. For example, a lot of the people uh, general people outside of the security world still do not know the difference between kidnap and abduction, for example. And for security, for us, it makes a whole difference whether that was abduction or kidnap, you see? Similarly, how can you explain to a non-security end user that, listen, this is a threat. However, this threat is not a risk to you. Now, what happens is for them, threat, risk, danger, everything's the same. Do you get my point? So the thing is, it mm -hmm. is about making security so non-technical, but still effective. That is the challenge for NGO security managers. How can you deliver security for a non-security end users without intimidating them with this all technical you know, jargons? 
One of the things that I did, I actually established security unit at ActionAid. So what I did was, and of course, with the help of so many colleagues, the whole security focal persons community, uh, directors, you know, everybody, because we work very collaboratively, like in many NGOs, I would say. What we did was we said, look, we're not going to, even in our trainings or in our manuals or in our handbooks, we will try our best to use normal language, non-security language. And that has helped, by the way. And um, yeah, I mean, it's my job to decipher when people report an incident. It's my job to decipher it. But let's not add that additional responsibility on the end users because they're already at the forefront delivering programs. They're doing 101 things. Let's not also teach them the technicalities of security. Again, that's another thing. The technicalities of security are not the same as actual security risk management. Because here's another thing. I went to stay, I mean, as part of our, you know, a couple of years, we go for immersion experience. We live with communities. We eat what they eat. We live like they do without internet, without, you know, running water. We just, you know, live live with the community to experience their life uh, for a day or two. And what I noticed in that small village in uh, Malindi, Kenya, was that people had their own way of managing security risks. They had their own way of identifying, assessing, analyzing, and mitigating, and even responding to risk. They even had a kind of like a very informal women-led, by the way, women-led crisis response structure. Now, was it the colonial model of a crisis response structure? Of course not. It was an indigenous model. But when we keep our eyes and our ears open and when we have our hearts and our minds open to learning from the communities that we work with, toward learning from people that we work with on the, on the front lines, then we're able to see that there's nothing new that we're teaching them. Rather, we're just refreshing the knowledge that they already have. Like you said, Tara, they already have that knowledge in a different way. But different does not mean wrong. And by the way, different also does not mean unprofessional. Because the professional standards have their roots in colonial legacy if I might add. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. I think, um, yeah, the, the language piece is pretty critical. And yeah, like like we've just talked about, for me, that's how I got to better understand that, you know, I wanted to be in the sector and I wanted to learn more about the sector and be engaged fully in the sector is when I have to thank the people that I acknowledge them now. I won't, I won't say their names, but I really appreciate those that really helped me and bring me into the sector because they helped give me the language that was necessary to understand those technical jargons and navigate the complexities that you just kind of unearth and, and understand kind of some of the existing ways that, that communities and individuals do practice security and align them in, and, and better understand how they match to the terminologies that we we now can, you know, we can have a whole separate conversation about some of those technical jargons. Let's examine for a moment an alternative job advertisement for a security manager who embodies an organization's commitment to breaking bias and adopting diversity and equity. What, what does that look like for you? Mm. 
Yes. Um, thanks for bringing us back to this one, because I think this was the second part of your first question. I haven't forgotten. Yes. So definitely, this is something we want to talk about. Look, like I said in the beginning, I examined just for fun a number of job adverts that were out there. Okay. So some mm. of the common things. Now, a lot of people might just ask, what are you talking about? Our EDI consultant also looked at it or our HR looked at it, but I'm just going to give my perspective. I may be absolutely wrong, but like I said, I take ownership for being wrong, okay? So now here's the thing I saw in several job advertisements for security-related responsibilities, especially at a global level, right? So those are the job levels that I'm talking about. So one was capacity building or capacity enhancement. Okay, so that's a condescending statement. People, <laughs> whoever is writing those, please review them from that angle. You cannot build other people's capacity. Like one person cannot go in down to another country and build their capacity. In the process of building capacity, you're also gaining a lot from them. And this is what our, you know, our colleagues of color, people in the global south often talk about behind closed doors. And I get to be there sometimes because of, you know, association by color, <laughs> which I'm very privileged about. So they sometimes say, well, you know what, they come. They ask us everything and then they make a report and that report has their name on it, you see? Or if the, if the local or, you know, national team is acknowledged, it's in like a one page of acknowledgement, who knows whose name is there. But you see the author, the report is referred to, you know, by author's name. So you see, that's what happened. So therefore, instead of using this word capacity building, can we not call it capacity sharing or sharing of learning, something like that? Of course, I mean, there are people that have much better English than me. They can come up with something that's a bit more empowering and less condescending. Okay, that's one. The other one was, and here's a very interesting one, especially for humanitarian security roles. Being able to travel at short notice. Tara, tell me something honestly. And I, I think our listeners can also weigh in on this. Who in this world can travel at short notice? Why aren't we just saying people with European passports only? Yes, they, you could say that you prefer people of color, with European, American, Canadian, or let's say, okay, let's let's generalize it. People from first world. <laughs> Tell me one person from, <laughs> let's say Uganda, who can travel to Germany on short notice, unless they have dual citizenship. Tell me one person from Bangladesh who can travel to US on a short notice and, or, or one person from Pakistan who can travel anywhere on short notice. Okay, so what I'm saying is when you're asking that in the job description, what are you actually saying by not saying it, but you're actually saying it. So that needs to be examined. Why would you need Okay, here's an, a fundamental question, and we don't need answers, obviously, because none of us has the answers, But, or I guess we do, but um, it's going to be a long answer. Why would you need your global 
humanitarian director to be going somewhere on a short notice only because you have not invested in building local capacities. And your global savior must rush down to save lives. Do you know? That whole conversation is packed in this one sentence, be able to deploy or travel on short notice. Tell me why, why? If you have a team down there, why haven't you built, you know, the technical skill? You did talk about capacity building. Why didn't you give them enough resources, financial and others, in good times so that they could be ready? Or why didn't you even help them invest in their own ways, local indigenous ways to build resilience? Or are you sending your global savior to comply with the global standards because the local standards aren't good enough? I mean, there's so many questions in just this little statement, okay? All right, moving let on. Me, let me actually ask you a little bit about that because what's the bridge there for you in terms of organizations who may only have a global level security manager? And what is what would be a bridge for you to get organizations to come up to speed and being more inclusive in that for you? Mm. Okay, so look, there are a number of things that we need to do. First of all, like I said in the beginning, there is the model on which this aid sector rests. This very structure of it needs to be, well, I don't want to use that word, otherwise, you know, I might just get hate messages, but I'm just gonna say it, it needs to be dismantled and recreated. Okay, it needs to be disrupted and recreated. And this time, please recreate it with inclusion, with other people's inclusion. You, most of the work, I mean, apart from the Ukraine crisis, which is going on right now, and it's really heartbreaking, but apart from, you know, the crisis in the global north, most of the situations happen in the global south because of years of plundering. Obviously, we know that. I mean, countries that are underdeveloped or let's say not amongst the developed category, they've also had years of plundering and colonization and whatnot and stealing, pure stealing. And it and that continues in the form of you know, tax evasions and whatnot. So the thing is, first of all, that structure needs to be dismantled and recreated. The other is about, you know, putting our money where the mouth is. I mean, for example, we're talking about uh, localization. We're talking about decolonizing aid. But what are the actual steps that have been taken? What are the tangible results that we're able to see? Are we really investing in partners' ability to, you know, to carry out the work uh, without needing these global NGOs? Are we, you know, are we really doing that? Or are we still keeping a part of them dependent on the support that only we can provide because we are, you know, well-connected in the donor community. If you want, you know, funding, you still need us. Or if you want like standards, and now again, standards as per this, you know, the structure, which is already, a colonial legacy, basically, you know? So are we still not, again, there's another thing, a, a local 
security policy is not compliant to the global security policy. And that's sometimes a huge issue in many organizations when the, when the local standards don't comply or don't match up to the global standards. But we've never paused, or maybe sometimes some of us have, but we, we, as a sector, we've never paused to reflect, maybe the global standards are redundant in the local standard. Maybe it's the local standard that should inform the global standard then rather than the other way around. You see, Tara, there's a last thing I'm going to share. It's the trust factor. Sometimes the headquarters that are usually in the global north, they don't even trust the local capacities. So, for example, if there is emergency response that needs to be set up or there is a donor proposal that needs to be finalized under short deadline, or you know there is a calamity that needs to be responded to, or something, anything, or a security crisis, someone's you know been kidnapped and that needs to be responded to, and the crisis management team is in place and all that. Then there is a there's an element of trust. We will not trust the response until one of our, one of us is down there with the team, and of course the team appreciates additional hands, but is it only that, or is there like that, you know, like trust factor going on? So, I mean, there's so many answers and so many dimensions to answer the question that you just asked as to how can we do it? But that how, first of all, the main thing is we need to acknowledge that there is a problem. We need to acknowledge that there is structural racism. I think we've got to recruit people more sensibly. People that we, it needs to be a different type of recruitment. And that's the whole conversation around, you know, the job adverts, because I mean, the job adverts themselves are hiring a very standard type of people. You know, I think you shared a lot of really interesting perspectives there. And I'm sure some listeners will have some questions or may even disagree with certain points you raised. And I think that's what's interesting. And my question in that to you would be, for those, you know, who might be curious about some of what you shared, noting that this is your perspective, do you find that your experiences are are similar to others like you in the sector? And do you feel that you find others like yourself in the sector? And would you say they have similar or shared experiences to what you're you're articulating? Hmm. That's an important uh, distinction between, you know, generalization, broad generalization, and uh, a very individual person-centric approach. What happens when we talk about diversity? I've noticed, and again, I'm no expert absolutely on nothing, but not especially on diversity. So this is, again, based on just my personal observation and because of my personal interest. When we talk about diversity, race, and issues like that, we do talk in general terms because... We know very well that no one race is homogenous. No one gender or non-gender is homogenous. Every individual has a very different story. But then the question arises, what level of generalization is acceptable? Or do you have to treat each individual separately? So I've heard many times a lot of people saying, well, uh, yes, Jab, you're right, but I think you're generalizing. And I, my counter question is, when are we not? So, for example, Tara, I'm a woman, woman of color, 
a Muslim, a Pakistani, but do I represent anyone else but me? No, no, because I do. I mean, despite being all that I just told you, I am so much more and I have so many privileges as well. Okay, I'm middle class, educated, born to a, you know, the progressive minded family. So many different things, you see. So, no, I think I cannot confidently say that my experiences would be similar to other people's experiences. And therefore, I said right at the beginning, look, I'm going to be 100% responsible and accountable for what I say today. If they turn out to be similar or resonate to somewhat somebody else's lived experiences, that's really well and good. But I don't ever expect it. Because most of the times when I'm speaking to even, uh, you know, my own friends who grew up with me, they don't agree with me and they have every right not to agree with me because they have not lived my life, you see? So that's how complicated this race, ethnicity, diversity, inclusivity issues are. I think what we sometimes end up doing, there are two things that we do and both are extremes. One, either we get into that really deep, never-ending academic philosophical discussion that is really good for, you know, um, you know, you know, uh, invoking, you know, more interest and dialogue and everything, but it doesn't result in anything tangible. But on the other extreme, we oversimplify it and try to create do's and don'ts list, which also don't work. So I guess it is a personal journey, but also it is organizational journey as well. Each organization must take on this conversation within their own spaces and empower colleagues and empower staff to generate ideas as to how that organization can build a culture that's inclusive rather than looking for those do's and do and you know do's and don'ts list or you know this template use it fill it if you get a score of 14 to 28 you're you know almost compliant above 28 perfectly compliant <laughs> below five you know you're horrible. So I don't believe in that kind of mathematic elements when it comes to something so complex and so sensitive as diversity. Well, that's super interesting. And I really appreciate you being authentic and honest in your response there. And I think that, you know, what I'd like to do, because we've had such a very interesting and dynamic conversation today is to give you the floor to share any, you know, final words of wisdom, particularly as we talk about the necessary skills for a security manager of today. And if you, you know, want to take a moment to just refresh for us and maybe summarize for us, for you, what does the security manager of today look like through your lens? And what is, what is the trajectory we're on and what are the things that you are, you know, hoping for in the foreseeable future for security managers of today? And I guess maybe to that extent tomorrow as well. Well, thanks, Tara. So I think, like I said, and we, we discussed um, a while ago, first of all, to create spaces like this. And I'm so pleased 
about uh, Global Interagency Security Forum and yourself, Tara, to organize this space. And I've uh, listened to your podcasts in the same series before. They're always very enlightening. They always leave so much uh, to think about, leave us with so much to think about, so much to take away. And so I think this conversation must continue. A lot of, sometimes people question, why are we still talking about it? It's a good thing that we're talking about it. We should talk about it more and there should be more openness. Okay. Um, I think the other thing that I would say is like we talked about, you know, any type of improvement, any type of change is a collective effort. It cannot be up to just, you know, obviously security managers or the GISF to be supporting the INGOs or, you know, one organization taking the lead. No, it, it is a collective effort. So it's all individuals, all organizations, and then collectively as the sector. So what can we do in our personal capacity. So I think personal capacity, the one thing that I would ask everyone to do, just read up, just read up, you know, what is privilege? What is diversity? What is the history of humanitarian aid sector? And the stuff that we talked about, is it for real? I mean, check it out yourself. I mean, do a fact check yourself, you know, read about culture appropriation, because there's a lot of that going on as well in the sector, by the way. I mean, an expert on Pashtun culture is somebody from, again, a really different culture. But because they lived in a Pashtun culture for three years, now they're a consultant for Pashtun culture. That is theft of cultural elements. And that, I would say, is cultural appropriation. So I think while hiring consultants or so-called experts, I think the NGOs and even individuals need to be mindful of, you know, where they're, they might be promoting or even compensating something of that nature. Read about, you know, legacy colonialism. And most importantly, please do read about anti-racism. I see this word reflected in so many documents these days. It's lovely to see it added. It shows consciousness and some sort of a political commitment. However, if you don't understand what it means, then it's just a word. So anti-racism, what does it mean? And how can you be anti-racist? It's no more sufficient. It's no more enough to be non-racist. You've got to be anti-racist in whichever space you occupy. Read it up. Now, last thing I'm going to say is someone once asked me, Jeff, can you recommend a few reading resources. And I said, Google, please Google it. And I'm sure when you buy a new TV and you don't know how to plug it, you Google it. That's how easy it is. You just Google and you will find, I promise you, you will find so many resources that you won't have time to read. So I don't have to recommend to you any new resources. Google has got it all. Good luck and enjoy reading. <laughs> so Javera, before we go, I know that there's going to be some listeners out there who say to you, to this conversation, what does that have to do with security risk management? What does these things that you're referring to really mean for security managers? What would you say to them? Mm, yeah, it's a good one. Yes, some people might just ask, uh, depending on what level of uh, let's say, career trajectory they're on, because if they have uh, been part of, let's say, strategy discussions, organizational strategy discussions, mission discussions, acceptance, 
if they've been part of, you know, negotiating access at a wider scale, if they've been part of, let's say, even, you know, next five years of fundraising or sustainability uh, discussions, I think they will understand that security is not just a technical field, especially when you're a business partner and a business enabler. You are part of the enterprise risk management. So you cannot just be looking in a silo. You can't just be looking at security in a silo because Security risk, you cannot even manage without managing program-related risks, right? For example, acceptance itself is more of a program-led approach. It's not even a security approach, isn't it? And similarly, when you manage, you know, your reputation, your donor relationships, even your relationship with the communities, that all sort of, you know, brings it all together under security. And sometimes if those aspects are not well-managed, You cannot do your job no matter how, again, how many trainings you've done and how many um, masters you've uh, completed, you know, in security risk management. So it is about being strategic. And I think I would invite my security colleagues or whoever might have that kind of question as to why does this relate to security that let's be more strategic in the way we engage with the sector. Let's be more strategic in the way we engage with the rest of the organization. We are one small part But if we want to enable the entire organization, the entire enterprise to move in the right direction, then we've got to have a more strategic vision. I think that's what I'll say. Thank you so much, Javeria. The Global Interagency Security Forum is a member-led NGO with a global network of over 130 member organizations and affiliates. We are committed to achieving sustainable access for populations in need through improved safety and security for aid workers and operations. GISF's original research, collaboration, and events drive positive change in security risk management across the humanitarian sector. We operate according to the humanitarian principles and lead on best practices and innovation by pushing for a collaborative and inclusive approach to security risk management.